This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. In early 2019, freshman Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey proposed a bold new piece of legislation, now very well known as the Green New Deal. Intended as a means of combating climate change, it stunned a number of people due to its enormous ambition, including massive overhauls of our energy systems, as well as providing housing and health care for everyone. Naturally, a piece of legislation this large raised a number of questions, which is what my guests today are here to discuss. I recently had the pleasure of talking with Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, Daniel Eldana Cohen, and Theo Riofrancos, the authors of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, published by Verso Books in 2019. The book is short and accessible, written for everyone interested in understanding this vital piece of legislation. So if you are like me and don't understand the fine details of climate economics, you can still pick this up and gain a sense of what is to be done. The book also features a short foreword by Naomi Klein, who has been tracking the relationship between economic and climate politics for quite some time. Kate Aronoff is a fellow at the Type Media Center and a contributing writer at The Intercept. She is the co-editor of We Own the Future and author of The New Denialism. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, Rolling Stone, Harper's, In These Times, and Descent. Alyssa Battistoni is a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University and an editor at Jacobin. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, N Plus One, The Nation, Jacobin, In These Times, Descent, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. Daniel Aldana Cohen is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Socio-Spatial Climate Collaborative. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, Nature, The Nation, Jacobin, Public Books, Descent, and NACLA. Thea Riofrancos is an assistant professor of political science at Providence College and is the author of Resource Radicals. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, N Plus One, Jacobin, the LA Review of Books, Dissent, and In These Times, and she serves on the steering committee of DSA's Eco-Socialist Working Group. Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, Daniel Aldana Cohen, and Theo Riofrancos, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. It's great to be here. So to start things off, early in the book, you write that for all his idealism, Obama and his presidency was largely a failure when it came to environmental policy, although you see that the failure stemmed not just from 
particular policies that weren't aggressive enough, but from a vision of politics that is unsuited to meet the challenges that face us. Can you unpack Obama's politics as you understand them and their unsuitability for addressing climate change? Thank you. That's a really great question. Um, I think for starters, we have to remember that when Obama was elected in 2008, he came in with a conciliatory approach to the overall economic and political establishment. Uh, his major priority with the stimulus um, and the recovery from the financial crash was continuity with the Bush administration, kind of restoring business as usual. Um, we talk in the book about how shortly after he came to power, he had a meeting with Wall Street executives where he said, the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks is me. Um, and what we argue in the book is that if you want to break the stranglehold of the fossil fuel industry, if you want to build the kind of alliances that are necessary to really transform the country, then you have to take a much more confrontational attitude to the elites that are in power. So we say that rather than you know standing in the way of the pitchforks, Obama should have built solar-powered pitchfork, pitchfork factories. Um, and you know the last thing I'll note is... During this debate around the stimulus um, package in 2008-2009, which is, I think, in a lot of ways similar to the debate we're having now with the COVID recession and, and depression, really. During that debate, the Obama administration didn't want to do anything that smacked of socialism, and they turned down really helpful and important proposals around things like green infrastructure banks, um, much more aggressive spending to keep people in their homes and not to be foreclosed upon. So both in terms of social equality and justice issues, and then linking them up to climate, Obama, rather than kind of going economic populism, rather than kind of rallying the base around a big, bold stimulus that would help people right away, took a much more cautious, low-key approach. And we actually think that that has a lot to do with how we ended up getting into the mess we're in uh, now. Yeah, and I would... You're right. Oh, oh sorry. I would just add to that, says Kate, that um, I think we see the political failures of Obama's approach to politics really bleed in, uh, as you mentioned, to the policy themselves, right? And so I think Obama, um, probably for you know most uh, kind of left of center or, or liberal folks who kind of pay attention to climate politics in a, in a sort of general sense, um, is probably remembered. Uh, as as being relatively you know uh, progressive on climate, especially in relief to to Donald Trump. Um, but you know, as 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 we'll probably talk about in a bit, there's this sort of ambivalence uh, that stems you know really from what we saw in in his approach to the stimulus um, around really going after the people who are causing the crisis. And so there was a big, you know, emphasis on um, in the stimulus and throughout his administration um, on, you know, building up uh, more of the good of, of sort of encouraging renewable energy development. The stimulus, you know, did include um, some, you know, fairly expansive in some ways policies um, to build out solar and, and wind um, and, you know, other things that, that are perfectly fine, but at the same time was not um, 
really attuned to, to, to drawing down um, kind of what we what we need to draw down um, and just sort of took this approach that we can sort of have, you know, as, as they framed it, all of the above, right? That, that we can do, you know, uh, anything under the sun. And, and so long as the good is getting done, the bad doesn't matter um, so much. And I think, you know, to get back to what Daniel was just talking about, there's just a real sort of um, hesitancy around any sort of, you know, populist vision around really naming, you know, who are the enemies in this situation um, and who are the heroes. And then I think, you know, for many people who ended up coming to support the Bernie Sanders campaign, who had, you know, come into politics or sort of come of political age thinking about Obama, um, I think that was, uh, you know, and, and speaking personally for myself, really disillusioning, right? Um, to, to see, you know, these people uh, in on Wall Street and corporate America so clearly cause um, the financial crisis that, you know, we see the parallel of that, you know, the fossil fuel industry has so clearly caused um, a climate crisis. And I think Obama really failed to articulate um, the the sort of stakes and, and, and just the political reality um, of, of kind of what these what these crises actually entail in a way that made it hard to build the sort of movement um, and build the sort of support uh, that, you know, uh, we know is, is needed uh, to, to take on the most powerful industry the world has ever known. And I, I think, you know, that's why we saw in some ways the failure of um, things like the cap and trade bill, you know, even the formulation of the cap and trade bill um, in 2009 really left a lot of, a lot of gaps after, after the, the initial stimulus. And so, um, you know, what we lay out in the book is, is, is a much, both a, a, a much more kind of populist climate politics um, than, than I think we saw in those eight years. And, and also, um, just a, a real, you know, uh, clear understanding of, of, of who, um, who, who's behind these, these problems. Yeah. Jumping off of that, you write that what distinguishes your vision of the Green New Deal from what you might call a faux Green New Deal is a different conception of how to mobilize and utilize political will and power. Can you unpack this vision of politics a little bit? Sure. So, we try to distinguish in the book our vision of a Green New Deal from what we describe, as you say, as, as the faux Green New Deal. Um, and one of the reasons we do that is because a lot of different political projects have used the language of the Green New Deal. Um, you did see, uh, for example, in the Obama administration, they would uh, people would talk about the Green New Deal. Um, it wasn't sort of like the main policy framework, um, but but you've seen this kind of language for a long time. And so we want to distinguish um, what we're talking about from sort of other versions of the of the Green New Deal. And um, the reason we call it the faux Green New Deal is because we don't think that uh, the, the version that's um, the sort of centrist version that we've seen on the table um, is going to work. And so what we see is the sort of faux Green New Deal is um, a, a, long, a continuation of the Obama era, uh, Obama era policy that Kate and Daniel have just described. So you might have uh, carbon taxes, probably with refunds for uh, poor people, um, investments in R&D, uh, and kind of a, a, a view of decarbonizing the economy gradually, efficiently, and without people really noticing that it's happening. Um, the, the sort of political uh, view is that you want to uh, the climate progress happens when it's narrow, when it's sort of out of sight and out of mind, um, uh, when you have 
uh, agreement amongst policy elites, but you don't really need popular support. And if anything, you kind of want to uh, keep it out of uh, public view. Um, and you don't really want to bring in the sort of other kinds of political and social uh, issues that we've seen in the in the current Green New Deal, which we'll talk about more. Um, so, for example, you don't want to uh, tie climate progress to uh, to struggles over social services, over inequality, uh, over these other kinds of political problems, because um, that's that's sort of seen as too much uh, of a of a lift. Um, and so, where I think we would differ from that um, is is sort of both a a, a pragmatic. Uh, and a political distinction. Um, and so I think we, you know, we don't think that the folk Green New Deal will work on its merits. Again, it's supposed to be a gradual solution and we're really out of time for gradual solutions. Um, but we also really think that we need to move beyond this idea that climate policy is something for experts. It's something for um, uh, that, that ordinary people would not uh, support or be excited about or fight for. Um, and that we actually see the the broadening of climate policy to in, include things like, um, you know, jobs, healthcare, housing, um, these other kinds of social services, public goods, and so on. That's actually a political asset. That's not something we should be afraid of. That's how we actually build a majority um, that supports major change and supports the kind of major structural changes we know we need um, and can really break through the status quo that otherwise is going to be, um, uh, I think, a real just a barrier to actually getting anything done. And I think we've seen that um, with the failures of the Obama administration, um, the ability of the Trump administration to roll back um, administrative changes and things like that. So we really think we need to build that kind of um, strong public support. Um, I will just um, jump in for a moment and say um, just one addition to what Alyssa said. Um, I think the other difference between our approach to both like the content of the Green New Deal, the policy content of it, but also like the kind of theory of, of power um, about how we would win a Green New Deal um, is also just much more confrontational. I think this is sort of reiterating part of what Alyssa said, but just to kind of emphasize it, that um, we very much see that the obstacles to climate progress are a set of economic and political vested interests that are not going to just kind of quietly kind of step aside so that we can implement progressive climate policy. Um, they are going to fight us every step of the way. And so we need to think in kind of agonistic and confrontational terms about who our opponents are, what the sources of their political and economic power are, and how to sort of build a coalition um, that's a majority coalition that is capable of defeating them at the ballot box and also at, of like bringing to bear popular pressure in terms of social mobilization. So I think that is very much missing from um, the kind of prior climate um, market oriented climate policies, that kind of agonistic vision. It was much more vision of like, we will work with the fossil fuel industry or sort of, you know, seek bipartisan um, consensus. But we know that the GOP and the fossil fuel industry, and honestly, a lot of the democratic establishment is really aligned uh, against um, uh, the vision of a Green New Deal. So, you know, to the extent we can work with um, elements of the Democratic Party, that's great. But we know that we are going to encounter opponents. So we need to kind of think um, clearly about about how we might defeat them. In trying to show how our system is rigged against itself, you use the example of PG&E, an electric provider in California. So what happened with this company and how does it demonstrate inconsistencies in our underlying legal logic of complicity and responsibility? 
Yeah, so PG&E is California's largest uh, electricity provider, um, uh, really focusing on sort of Northern California and uh, sort of central part of the state. And in the last couple of years has been found responsible for uh, a number of wildfires um, for a number of reasons. Just recently, um, since the book came out, they um, pled... Uh, uh, pled guilty to 86 counts of manslaughter for their involvement in a campfire. And, and, and something we sort of unpack on the book is, is, is looking um, at just what all this liability means and why it's so important to take that into consideration. So California has a very specific um, legal statute which uh, allows electric utilities to be held um, responsible for um, for damage that their uh, their lines cause, and um, as as we lay out, um, PG&E had consistently disinvested from its safety budget um, to give more uh, more uh, provide more money to shareholders um, because they are you know ultimately a for profit company, and and you know the the business model of, of electric utilities, private electric utilities. Um, is pretty idiosyncratic. They don't, you know, quite operate like a for-profit firm. They have these um, uh, these these monopolies, which are were negotiated, you know, at the start of the the twentieth century, sort of as electricity um, providers were coming online um, for the first time, and it's this really sort of dated, um, you know, dated legal infrastructure. But what we what we try to look at is just how um, the, the need to to really think about this question of, of culpability um, in uh, a much broader context um, and, and really think about what it looks like to treat electricity, you know, as what it is, which is a, a sort of basic right and, and just a kind of um, necessity for people to, you know, move about the world in, in the 20, 21st century. Um, and so uh, PG&E um, is interesting in this regard because there is this legal statute in California um, and, you know, because they have done what a lot of uh, privately owned electric utilities have done. So um, through their membership in the Edison Electric Institute, um, you know, pushed for things like climate denial. Um, they were a sort of leading voice. The Edison Electric Institute was a leading voice uh, in the Global Climate Coalition, um, which spent years trying to convince the U.S. to, you know, ultimately successfully uh, remove its support from the Kyoto Protocol, the sort of precursor to the Paris Agreement, um, and really uh, just had, you know, has a lot to do uh, both with why why those sort of lines sparked in the first place through this disinvestment, through prioritizing the interest of shareholders over um, the people they were ostensibly providing the service to, um, and uh, are, um, are are sort of you know have have a kind of wide range of, of responsibility um, for um, for the fires themselves um, through you know their their own um, kind of prolific lobbying at the international level and at the state level, um, and so uh, we uh, are you know trying to dig into that picture in part because electric utilities almost, you know, uniquely from the fossil fuel industry, which we also discuss, um, are thought about as these sort of neutral actors. And that's the product of uh, about a century of, of uh, public relations efforts um, on the part of the private electricity industry um, to, uh, you know, 
cast themselves as, you know, it, as public utilities, um, which which was a, a sort of thing they started doing back in the 1920s. Um, and so I think, you know, we can't, if, if we're to kind of think about the climate crisis and just kind of realistic terms, um, you know, have to treat utilities for what they are, which is uh, private companies, which whose interest is to feed profits to their shareholders and not to either provide uh, a service, uh, which, which is, you know, what actual public utilities um, ostensibly do um, and, you know, are kind of actively opposed to um, what we would, what we would hope for. And so, you know, they have been made uh, through, regulations sort of at the behest of, of climate activists in California um, to adopt more renewable energy to, you know, go farther than many private utilities have. Um, but ultimately we, um, we think that the profit motive um, does not, you know, have, have a firm place um, in the provision of, of what we think should be a basic right. Um, and um, not only that, but, the uh, that we think you know public ownership should be a tool that, that's worth considering. It's something that has a long history in the United States. It's something that you know the even kind of conservative administrations have done, um, and so we uh, we we you know want to put that back on the table. To develop the dynamics of our current energy economy a bit more, you write quote. Even as solar and wind have gotten cheaper and more widespread, the proportion of energy they generate nationwide has increased only slightly. Good energy isn't displacing enough of the bad. It's just adding more. We need to stop the bad directly. So there's a lot we could discuss with this, but you jump off this to discuss how this calls into question a number of assumptions we hold about supply and demand economics, particularly the idea that as green energy became cheaper, it would become more popular and slowly replace fossil fuels. Why haven't these assumptions played out and what is actually needed to move us along here? Yeah. So as I was mentioning at the beginning, even kind of uh, very progressive um, politicians operate by this kind of implicit market logic, which is that if we just build up more of the stuff we want, so solar and wind, that eventually that will cut into demand for incumbent fuels. So coal, oil, and uh, fossil gas, uh, which is sometimes referred to as natural gas. Um, and, and what we've seen, as you mentioned in the question, is that that has not really happened, right? We have seen uh, really prolific growth in renewables uh, since in the last 10 years, um, but that has not you know, meaningfully cut into, into demand for uh, fossil fuels, right? Energy demand continues to grow, um, and, and, and much of that continues, the vast majority of that continues to be met um, with fossil fuels. And so what we, what we lay out uh, is, is that, you know, the energy economy has never um, operated by the logic of a free market in the way that this kind of all of the ab- approach would encourage us to think, right? And so um, the tax credits, for instance, for the renewable in- energy industry, the investment tax credit and production tax credit um, are temporary, are set to be phased out, both of them. Um, within the next couple of years, there's now a debate uh, within uh, Congress about you know whether that should be continued as a terms of the coronavirus stimulus. Um, and on the other side of that, with incumbent fuels, uh, the fossil fuel industry gets 
very conservatively speaking, about $26 billion a year um, of very reliable subsidies through state and federal governments um, in the form of tax breaks, preferential leasing, kind of all manner of things. And so there are many ways in which the government already really actively supports uh, incumbent fuels and, and, and the fossil fuel industry. Um, and that, you know, is very far from a level playing field in the way that uh, the fossil fuel industry has sort of tried um, tried to paint uh, what's happening and that they'll say, you know, the solar wind uh, industries are just, you know, the products of these, these generous subsidy arrangements when, you know, almost the inverse is true, right? That the fossil fuel industry um, could not meaningfully exist uh, without, you know, ample amounts of state support. And that's basically been true um, for as long as we've had fossil fuels, essentially. Um, and so what we what we argue, um, which is not, you know, should not be controversial, um, is that in addition to building more of the stuff we need, we also need to draw down, um, draw down what we don't. Uh, and so the, the metaphor that um, some of the, the folks we uh, cite in, in, in the book uh, and who have done great research on this say is that, you know, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, and we are continuing to dig, dig the hole uh, of fossil fuels. So. A uh, report from the UN Environment Program has found um, that we are, you know, on track to, um, the world's governments are on track to produce 50% more fossil fuels and is consistent with the guardrail of two degrees Celsius outlined in the Paris Agreement and 120% more than is consistent with limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. Um and that's a disaster, right? So that's the path that we're on if we just, you know, continue to uh, fund projects, which as of now, um, you know, the last couple of weeks of oil price drop, uh, notwithstanding, um, look economical. And so um, there are, you know, essentially two paths forward from here, right? Especially, you know, given sort of um, the turmoil in the oil industry in the past couple of weeks, we can either crash out of the fossil fuel economy, um, we can, you know, have uh, some sort of very abrupt change, whether that's through some accumulation of market forces or through pure climate disruption. Um, we know the fossil fuel industry is not going to be around forever. Um, and what we argue for instead um, is to have a sort of managed decline uh, along the lines that climate justice advocates have been calling for for a long time along the lines that, you know, sort of researchers of this uh, of, of fossil fuel supply have been have been looking at um, and to do this in an orderly manner. Um, and, you know, as, as, as we discuss, um, use public ownership, use nationalization um, as a tool um, to, to wind down the fossil fuel economy at the um, scale and speed that we need and also provide uh, a sort of meaningful off ramp uh, that that you know, allows workers in those sectors who have had well-paid work for a long time um, to continue to make a dignified living um, and then transition into other well-paid um, unionized work. Yeah, speaking to kind of what you've been developing a little bit or hinting at, one of the solutions you float throughout the book is public ownership of electric utilities, among others, which, as I was surprised to find out, is already fairly common especially in more rural areas that you wouldn't imagine being open to state ownership. Can you explain both how public ownership of these sorts of utilities works as opposed to private ownership and how communities can organize to make public ownership a reality? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll take uh, the first part of that question, then um, I think Thea can speak uh, uh, a lot more actually to you know what 
kind of organizing around this looks like being involved in it. Um, so yeah, as, as you mentioned, and as we, we state in the book, public ownership is not um, either a foreign concept for electric utilities and for the economy more generally. And so a lot of this comes out of um, a sort of big push uh, when electrification was first starting to happen um, to have utilities be owned by um, the cities in which they're operating. Um, so municipal utilities were fairly widespread um, and there was a real active political battle on behalf of private utilities, people like Samuel Insull, um, to uh, make private ownership the sort of industry standard um, across the board. Um, and so what we see is, is always a sort of mix of private and public ownership structures. One that we, we talk a bit about um, are the rural electric cooperatives, um, which uh, came, came out of a New Deal program, which was responding to uh, the fact that the private industry, uh, that the private electric utilities um, just simply did not see a profit in extending electricity lines to mostly poor rural communities, about 90% of which at the start of the depression lacked electricity entirely. And so we saw that um, flip over the course of the next several decades and communities really come together and um, organize with federal support and technical assistance um, and, and funding, crucially, uh, their own electric utilities, which to this day... Um, continue to provide about 11% of the country's power demand um, and are legally owned and operated um, by their members. It's worth noting, um, as, as I've written about and, and you know, we, we get into in the book, that these are not um, necessarily progressive institutions, uh, all of them, right? The electric uh, electric co-ops um, have, you know, in many ways sort of devolved into kind of old boys networks, but um, are the sort of public infrastructure that, you know, can be uh, made more democratic. Um, so as we push for um, public ownership uh, of private utilities, we also push for a more democratic operation of existing public utilities. We've seen, you know, some sort of exciting stuff on this front in Nebraska, um, which has an entirely publicly owned grid. Um, and it's just not, uh, not controversial controversial um they're really um that that it is it is publicly owned and in fact um it's widely you know popular there are attempts um as somebody i was talking to for a reporting project um that i've been working on since since the book came out um talked to a, a commissioner um in the nebraska public power district uh or the omaha public power district there um and he said, you know, there are attempts every couple of years to privatize our public system and they're just always beaten back um, just because, you know, people like it. People actually, you know, are proud of the service they get from their public utility. And, you know, it's not perfect, but um, people want it. So, so, you know, again, we really just want to put this on the table as an option, uh, both for um, expanding democracy and sort of democratic control over the institutions which affect our lives, um, and also as a sort of really necessary step to extract the, the profit motive from um, the provision of what, again, we, we think should be a basic good. Yeah, do you have anything you want to add? Um, yeah, I'll just add briefly that um, one of the one of the developments that has happened over the past couple of weeks related 
to um, the coronavirus and to the economic recession and economic hardship that it's causing is that we've seen a lot of um, really interesting campaigns develop around the sort of theme of basic needs and demands around more universal forms of social provisioning and social welfare. And one of those has been around utility shutoffs in particular. Um, as we know, there are, you know, majority of Americans are kind of, you know, in one sense or another living paycheck to paycheck, even folks that have white collar professional jobs, as soon as those um, they as soon as they're laid off or they don't have employment, you know, they suddenly are basically unable to provide for any of their basic needs. And so there have been these demands gaining steam around um, preventing utility shutoffs. Um, so preventing the shutoffs of electricity, um, gas um, and water. Um, a lot of those are We've just been hearing about public utilities, but a lot of Americans do pay their bills to private utilities, and those private utilities can be pretty unforgiving um, when you're late with a bill, and they will shut you off after 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, depending on the case. So um, we've seen a lot of municipal-level and state-level campaigns around uh, demanding moratoria on shutoffs. Some of those have been successful already, um, and some of those demands are are resonating in, in, in Congress as well, so that's pretty inspiring. Um, and in addition, um, we've, there's kind of been a, was a prior wave of, uh, campaigns around demanding public ownership of utilities. And those campaigns, uh, are still, still in existence and they're sort of retooling given the fact that social distancing, obviously it creates limitations on how we organize, but a lot of those campaigns were, um, coming out of DSA chapters around the country. Um, and some of the, particularly interesting ones in in New York and in Chicago um, have seen kind of city councilors and state legislators take up some of those demands and sort of move some legislation forward to potentially take over, either take over an existing utility or create municipal um, utilities or um, expand public power authorities that already exist. So there's been kind of various waves of, of contention over, over utilities. And I think kind of all of these highlight um, a phrase I really like from from Bernie Sanders' um, Green New Deal platform, which is that we need to get greed out of our energy system. And whether people are demanding an end to utility shutoffs um, or demanding a wholesale public takeover of the energy system, um, we've seen a lot of kind of politicization of of energy and and kind of deeper questions around like how is energy governed and in whose interests um, and how do we guarantee um, safe and equitable and affordable um, access to energy and, and other basic utilities. In debates over transitions to a green economy, there's a common stereotype that emerges of pot-smoking hippies versus factory workers and hard hats, with one political slogan even emerging that read, are you an environmentalist or do you work for a living? You argue while this dichotomy has functioned very well at the ideological level, it gets a number of things wrong, not just about what counts as a green job, but even in what it assumes about the stereotypical hard hat worker. So can you unpack the problematic assumptions built into this idea? Yeah, definitely. That um, the, the dynamic you describe of kind of environmentalists and hippies uh, against uh, workers has been really, I think, one of the most um, uh, significant and uh, sticky political challenges around environmental questions. Um, anytime you have, for the past, basically since the environmental legislation of the 70s, um, which was the last and only really major environmental legislation um, and environmental regulation we've had in this country, uh, every time you have a proposal for environmental regulation, the right to 
oh, well, that will kill jobs. Um, environmentalists, uh, you know, hate jobs and workers. Um, and so this has been a really tough dynamic to get past, especially as uh, work has grown more precarious, as uh, unions have grown weaker, um, and people are more dependent on the jobs they have. So um, it's it's been a real challenge. And there's been this, you know, a, a green jobs framework to address it. But I think, um, you know, that doesn't just saying green jobs doesn't necessarily get um, us past this sort of uh, dichotomy. But what we try to do in the book is to sort of um, to to both question whether that's actually a useful dichotomy, because actually um, protections of both labor and environment uh, tend to, to, to go together. So when you have more protections for workers, you tend to have more protections for the environment. And when you have uh, fewer protections um, for one, you have fewer protections for the, uh, for the other. Um, they're not uh, in, in conflict with each other. They're in conflict with, um, with capital, with uh, bosses, with people who are trying to sort of squeeze as much as they can out of both workers and, um, and uh, the earth to, to make more money. And so we want to draw attention to actually that dynamic um, and to also to draw, to show uh, that there are a lot of workers that we should think differently, um, both about how workers think about the environment, but also what kinds of workers are doing what we think of as green jobs. So um, I'll start with sort of the second part of your question about um, whether we need to rethink sort of that stereotypical hard hat worker. Um, and you know, I think we do because I think the idea that hard hat workers or like miners or construction workers or um, the sort of the sort of stereotype of like a, a guy, probably a white guy with a hard hat and an industrial production job or some sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, manual labor job um, is is inherently anti-environmental, um, opposed to anything that an environmentalist would say, I just don't think is true. And there actually is a rich history of workers who have fought for environmental and health protections. So we look to um, Mine Workers for Democracy, uh, which is a faction of the uh, coal miners uh, uh, movement in the 1960s that fought for improved health and environmental protections. Um, we look to the uh, Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, which in the 70s and 80s fought for increased health and safety protections and even for um for what they called a GI bill for nuclear and atomic workers that would basically uh, make it possible to wind down the nuclear industry, which they recognized was, you know, harmful to society in uh, obvious ways, um, while also being able to, to wind those industries down without making workers uh, pay for, um, for what was going to be socially beneficial. So we think that we can take inspiration from those fights, um, from the history of those fights led by workers themselves, um, and the sort of framework of what's called a just transition that um, labor unions have developed in tandem with environmentalists rather than against them, which is uh, calling for a transition away from fossil fuels that doesn't put the burden on workers. Um, and that makes it possible for people uh, to do different kinds of work because we know that people actually do need uh, that work to be able to survive. So um, it's it's obviously not uh, anyone's fault that they um you know, want to keep uh, a job, especially if um, in many parts of the country, a fossil fuel job might be the only kind of job around. It might be the only kind of job you can get that pays well without advanced education and so on. So we we need to, um, I think, draw from that history to um, to not just assume that uh, workers or, or these kinds of sort of uh, fossil fuel or, uh, you know, industrial workers are always against environmental protections because they obviously also bear a lot of the immediate environmental burdens um, of things like pollution. 
Um, but we also want to sort of interrogate this question of what is a green job? Because um, a lot of, I think the, the usual thought when we talk about green jobs is that this is uh, a, a green job is sort of transitioning somebody maybe out of fossil fuel work into green energy production. So maybe instead of a coal miner, you become a solar panel uh, installer or you work uh, to build wind turbines or something like that. Um, and we definitely need a lot of people to do that kind of work. But we also want to broaden um, the view of what a green job is uh, to include um, a, a much wider range of work um, and work that that we see as work that improves people's lives in low carbon ways. So we think that that includes things like care work, um, teaching, care for the earth, uh, and a lot of other kinds of work that are um, that are low carbon and sort of socially beneficial, um, and which are also growing very quickly. So, um, you know, a huge amount of the economy now is service work. We know um, for many years, the fastest growing kind of job has been uh, jobs in care work. So whether that's nurses, home health aides, uh, elder care, child care, um, there's a huge amount of, of, of care that we need in society, um, even though we're also suffering from a, a crisis of care, or a care deficit, where a lot of people aren't able to access affordable care um, and, and good care. And on the other hand, a lot of care workers are paid really poor wages. Um, so we really want to sort of bring this other set of workers into the picture and say, this is the economy that we part of the broader transformation of the economy um, that we think we need, which is not to just build solar panels sort of uh, in perpetuity because we don't need to, um, we do need to, you know, revamp uh, the economy in the short term to, to churn out a lot of, uh, you know, solar panels and, and uh, electric buses and all those things. We don't need to do that forever. At some point, we need to just live in the world that we've built and to think about the kinds of work that will help us do that in, in good ways. One of the things you call attention to is our understanding of what counts as valuable work, as well as calling into question the idea that just any old job can be uplifting for the worker. And as you put it, shitty work takes a toll on your soul. Can you explain the dual promise of the Green New Deal providing both better jobs and more free time? Yeah, I'm really glad you draw attention to that because I think that's very much that's really important to the vision is both better work and less work. Um, so as I was just saying, we really, um, we want to, uh, to, to recognize and revalue these kinds of work that are um, really crucial to, uh, to our lives, to, uh, to improving our lives, to sustaining our lives, and that are also low carbon. Um, and a lot of those kinds of work are, uh, are right now not very valued very highly. They're paid poorly. They're exploited. Um, we're actually at, I think, a really interesting moment uh, in terms of the re-evaluation of what kinds of work are valuable. Um, you know, uh, since the start of the COVID crisis, we've seen this sort of um, recognition that certain kinds of jobs or the declaration of certain kinds of jobs as essential work. Um, and that's, you know, nurses and doctors and EMTs and other uh, medical health professionals, but also uh, a lot of other people who are sort of keeping, um, you know, daily life going. So people working in grocery stores, agricultural workers, home healthcare workers, uh, delivery workers, a lot of other kinds of workers. And so I think it's in a really interesting and important moment to sort of look and say, um, you know, now there are, I was just reading the other day about uh, workers who are uh, undocumented, 
um, agricultural workers in California who, you know, live in fear of deportation and who now have been just declared essential. Um, and I'm glad that we're recognizing that that work is essential, but I really think we need to uh, to treat those workers as, as essential um, as they actually are, to recognize that work uh, beyond the crisis and also to pay those workers what they deserve and give them the protections they deserve. Um, but at the same time as we're sort of um, insisting that we need to revalue certain kinds of work, uh, these kinds of work of, of daily life that is so essential, um, we don't want to romanticize those jobs. So, uh, you know, care work, for example, is essential. It sounds nice. Everyone wants care, but it's still really hard, exhausting work. Um, and even the most rewarding kinds of work can be uh, done under poor conditions that make the work worse. Um, they can, if you do too much of it, you know, uh, it's, it's worse. Uh, I think any kind of work can become shitty work if it's, if it's, if you're doing it under um, shitty conditions. And so um, we, we, nobody wants to do, you know, even the work that they love all the time. So we really want to imagine how, um, we can we can improve work and value uh, and value forms of work, but also call for less work um, and more time to spend the ways we want to, uh, to spend uh, with, um, you know, with and doing what we call low carbon leisure. So that might be, um, you know, spending time with friends and family, uh, enjoying the outdoors and parks uh, in city parks or in national parks or sort of going for a hike. Um, enjoying music and art, making music and art, all of these kinds of things that make life good and meaningful, um, but that are also low carbon, uh, not resource intensive that you can, uh, that you really just need time <laughs> to be able to do, um, and the freedom to be able to do. And so we, we think that that's really important as part of sort of what the vision of, of um, what work is and what the place of work in our society is in a Green New Deal. Um, and we also know that, you know, less work is correlated with lower carbon emissions. So um, I think it's, it's a way, again, to, um, to improve people's lives uh, by giving them time um, in a way that, that also can help us decarbonize. One of the things that seemed to surprise and perhaps even frustrate a number of critics of the Green New Deal was the inclusion of housing and healthcare, which they see as unrelated to the issue of climate change. So to just ask very bluntly, why include seemingly unrelated things like healthcare, housing, job training, unionization, and education on a piece of environmental legislation? Thank you, Stephen. That's that's a great question. Um, I think we have to start by acknowledging that carbon touches everything. Um, that's what makes this an emergency. It's not just that climate change has terrible effects on us. It's also that almost everything that we do implicates the cause of climate change, which is carbon emissions. And when you follow them off the most abstract graphs, which just, let's say, show energy and carbon or agriculture and carbon, you find that you can follow the carbon into the viscera of social life and see it everywhere. Um, take housing. Homes are responsible for about 20% of the energy use in the U.S. and 40% of the electricity use. So there's really no good way to decarbonize the economy without reducing the amount of carbon emissions that come from how much energy homes use and the fact that they rely on things like uh, fossil gas to you know, cook or to heat the water or heat the air. Um, once you realize that carbon is kind of all pervasive, you lose any justification for treating this as fundamentally a problem for energy wonks only. You realize that it's uh, everywhere. So housing movements that are defending, for instance, dense, affordable housing 
uh, near public transit and in walkable areas, those movements, even if they don't call themselves climate protagonists, are in fact defending low-carbon cities uh, or defending a low-carbon way of life. Um, as Alyssa was, was alluding to with this discussion of, of low-carbon leisure, um, one of the most powerful ways that you reduce emissions and in fact reduce resource use overall, which is essential for the overall ecological crisis that we're in, one of the ways you reduce resource use is you shift from the private consumption of goods, many of which we don't need, to um, public luxury. We talk about you know, housing and, and parks and so on as temples of public luxury um, and spending time with the people we love. That's only actually possible if you have things like education, healthcare, and so on paid for. Um, so when Alyssa was alluding to or talking about how there are these studies that show that lower work hours translate into lower emissions, where you really see that happening is in Northern Europe, um, and to some extent in the UK, in places where there's a very strong welfare state. And then what's happening is that workers are choosing to reduce their hours, to spend more time with people they love, taking advantage of sports facilities, um, playing music, you know, hanging out, going for hikes. In Stockholm, you can literally take the subway basically into the woods. Um, so they're shortening their work hours. They don't need to work as many hours because they have their basic services paid for. And then they're using the time of day that they save to spend time with the people they love. And that then lowers um, the emissions, their, their carbon emissions. So I think fundamentally, we do need to get into this notion that tackling climate change in an emergency mode and in a holistic mode really does involve multiple sectors. It's going to involve the way that labor is organized, housing, as I mentioned, transportation, agriculture, the way that we spend our leisure time. We could go on and we'll talk about a few more of these topics uh, today. And so our view of that is don't be scared of how all pervasive carbon is. Instead, build coalitions in multiple different areas of social life to tackle what's specific there. So build coalitions with the housing movement and with labor unions around retrofitting housing so that they don't cause uh, carbon emissions. You know, build coalitions with uh, nurses unions and teachers unions to grow the care economy and reduce the amount that we put on our credit card for crap that we don't need. Um, so I'll, I'll let Alyssa kind of fill in a little bit more of that, but I hope this gives a sense of what it's like to follow the carbon in the viscera of social life and then to find the potential for big, large social coalitions and political coalitions. Yeah, I'll just say something briefly on sort of the um, why things like education, healthcare in particular, um, should be part of how we see a Green New Deal framework. And I think, you know, as I was trying to sort of allude to in, in my last answer, um, we we really see those kinds of uh those kinds of work and those access to those kinds of uh, the sort of, I guess, services they produce, you might say, um, but access to care and education as, as really crucial to the kind of vision of, of the good life that Daniel's just describing of the low carbon good life um, and expanding the, the sectors of the economy that are um, employing people doing that work as being really crucial to doing so. So I think, um, again, it's part of this broader vision of how uh, of why healthcare and education are, are sort of the foundations or the pillars of the green economy. Um, well, at the same time, I think, uh, as we're seeing now in a system where you have healthcare tied to people's employment, um, the threat of losing healthcare is makes it really difficult to uh, to present some kind of a bold idea like a, a radical Green New Deal and to have that not be threatening to workers. So, you know, as I was saying earlier, the uh, the more precarious work is um, and the more workers have to lose, the less likely they are going to be to want to, you know, sort of strike out for, for something different. Um, even if we know uh, everything we know about climate change, it's, it's still, if you're going to lose your health care, 
and your job, then that's uh, a really frightening proposition. And so um, having uh, access to healthcare for for more people, for um, you know, universal healthcare for everyone, I think actually changes some of that political dynamic around uh, whether it's it's possible for people to leave um, uh, you know jobs in the fossil fuel industry and to know that they're going to be taken care of on the other side. So we really need to be thinking of that as as part of the political project too. Um, and, you know, things like worker training and unionization, we just, you know, we, we know we're going to have to do a lot of uh, new kinds of work. There's a lot of work to be done. And um, historically, we've, you know, in the sort of Obama administration, people called for job training. Job training is good, but it's it's really not enough. We need to also have the jobs. Um, and uh, and unionization is just a way to make sure that those jobs are good jobs, um, you know, sort of per the discussion of, of shitty work earlier. So um, as Daniel is saying, you know, we all, all politics is climate politics. We see uh, carbon and climate everywhere, and that can be actually a benefit to, to building um, a movement and a vision of the Green New Deal that goes beyond like one piece of legislation, uh, goes beyond one resolution, and actually sees this as a framework for politics over the next um, several decades and this decade in particular. Obviously, one of the big moves the Green New Deal will make is switching us over to things like wind and solar power. But you write that that's the easy part. The bigger challenge is, quote, shaping the new energy system itself, where we build renewable sources, how we move clean energy and how and how much we use it. You then go on to explain the way we need to restructure our energy infrastructure beyond just the type or source we use. So can you explain the issues with our current grid system and the sort of grid we'd need to replace it with? Thank you for asking that. Um, We need to move off of fossil fuels, um, and that means we need to rely on renewable sources. And two of the big ones, the ones that we all know about that will be essential, are wind power and sun power. now, as we all know, uh, it doesn't always blow. The wind doesn't always blow, and the sun doesn't always shine. Um, and as a result of that, we need to change the way that we organize our entire energy infrastructure, essentially, so that we don't suffer wild unreliability coming from the fact that you know sometimes the sun isn't there; it's never there at night, and the fact that the wind can be somewhat intermittent. So, what I talk about is there are kind of two major challenges uh, to how the energy system is is functioning um, to deal with this. And let me just go quickly one at a time. Um, The first is that we need to be able to move power over very long stretches of space um, so that whenever you need energy, uh, there is some energy somewhere. So for instance, when the sun sets on the East Coast, you need to be able to move wind power from the Midwest, which is very windy, all the way over to New York City, Philadelphia, uh, Washington, D.C., you name it, all the way down through Georgia. And you also need to be able to move sun power to where it's needed, uh, depending on the geography. So right now we have, actually, the United States doesn't have a national power grid. And what we argue in the book is that unlike the kind of libertarian fantasy that everybody can be a little island of renewable energy, um, yes, you want local energy, but you fundamentally need a national system so that you can kind of slosh the power around um, from where it's being produced to where it's needed. And that involves complex things like building a lot of new high voltage transmission lines, which is going to require major public investment if this is actually going to get done. Um, The second thing that we need to do is we need to have a more flexible 
on our energy system in our homes and, and businesses. Um, fundamentally, what's going on here is you need to be able to put your, your dishes in the dishwasher, and then you press a button that says, you know, wash when ready. And when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing and there's a bit of extra energy in the system, then your dishwasher will go and the utility will turn it on. Um, or the hottest uh, hours of the day when all the air conditioners in the region are running, the utility might turn yours off for two or three minutes at a time, something you wouldn't likely notice, um, but that helps to kind of smooth out the use of electricity over the entire region. So one could go on and on, and this can get quickly very technical, um, but it speaks to just two political challenges that I think we have to face up to and where we haven't been doing very well so far. The first one is building a lot of new infrastructure uh, in rural spaces, so power lines, solar farms, wind farms. Um, you just cannot avoid the need to do that. And so we need to have a, do a much better job of bringing local benefits to the communities that are affected by new power lines, by new solar installations, by new wind farms. Make sure that those communities are involved in the decisions. How is this going to be designed? Where is it going to go? What are the local benefits going to be? Um, that's a real important site of democratizing our energy infrastructure. Much, much, much more local involvement in these decisions. Otherwise, you're going to get a huge backlash. Uh, there's a group, for instance, in Ontario called Mothers Against Wind Turbines. You know, Republicans like to exploit this stuff. So we really need a, um, a better, more democratic way of ensuring that energy infrastructure um, is embraced by local communities and they have significant say over it and get a lot of the benefits from it. And the second challenge is, like I was saying, if you have in your home appliances that are connected to the utility, um, you need to trust that you're not essentially turning all your data over to corporations who are going to make a boatload of money off of it. And so we argue that the information systems that link up energy appliances in our homes to the utility and to the grid, um, those should be connected with things like algorithms that are open to the public scrutiny. So something kind of like Wikipedia, where any coder can go and look and see exactly, okay. This is, how, um, this is how the utility is deciding when to tweak your AC, when to tweak your fridge. Um, right now, the use of things like smart meters and smart appliances really doesn't have that democratic quality to it. So I guess just to sum up, there are all these different, very, very technical aspects of the energy system that require change so that we can go to 100% clean energy. Um, and we think that's going to work best if it's subjected to more democratic oversight, if the public is more involved if it is less controlled or ideally not at all controlled by large corporations. Um, and I think that gives you a sense of why a social perspective, a democratic perspective on the energy transition is necessary if we're going to actually get all this done and have people excited about making all these changes. One of the dangers in implementing the Green New Deal is enforcing a one-size-fits-all approach down everyone's throats without attentiveness to local needs and desires. So to make sure we avoid that and to assuage the anxieties of any listeners who are afraid they'll have no say in how to live their lives under the Green New Deal, how do we ensure that communities are able to participate in the implementation of these policies in ways that fit their particular needs? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I would start off by saying not all anxieties are created equal, right? I think there's a um, there's been sort of pushback, which Daniel was mentioning, um, to certain kinds of, of renewable energy development that 
um, certainly can be uh, really worked out with uh, more democratic planning procedures, with more local involvement. Um, but we we also know, you know, that um, we've had things like uh, wind development being fought off the coast of Cape Cod, for instance, um, by very wealthy homeowners who don't want it to obstruct their view. Um, and so I think, you know, it's worth sort of looking at these things in, in uh, on a on a case-by-case basis in some ways, and also just not being too romantic about the energy system that we live in now, um, particularly with regard to what it's doing to the planet and the kinds of destruction it's already wreaking um, uh, across the earth. Just, you know, just recently, for instance, you know, one of the youngest people to die so far uh, from the coronavirus here in the U.S. was a young boy um, living in the Bronx, which has, you know, some of the highest rates of air pollution in, in New York State, where, where I'm, you know, talking to you from. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's just worth noting that the kind of way things are now are already killing people. And so um, if it's a matter of kind of assuaging, um, you know, a, a, a sort of a wealthy homeowner that they won't have uh, a, a wind turbine in their backyard that may um, be in some ways less important, right? Than or you know, for instance, as, as Daniel was getting into, and and you know, as he as, as we all write about in the book, um, and he's done more work on and in other work, um, we need you know massive amounts of 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 housing, right? And we need to build uh, a, a lot of housing, and and that has been bought by uh, you know what's termed kind of nimbyism, not in my backyard. Um, and so I think, you know, it takes a sort of broader look at, at what, um, you know, what is, is democratic. And I think this, I, I say all that, you know, in, uh, in, in no contradiction to, to what we lay out in the book, um, which is kind of a vision for a radically democratized economy. Right. And so I think we, you know, our vision of a green new deal is a thoroughly, Democratic one in which, you know, in keeping with the best parts of the original New Deal, um, really looks to local expertise, the rural electric cooperatives, which I um, mentioned before, that was a sort of bottom up process. The reason we had that, you know, was in part because public power advocates um, had experimented with this at the local level and found it to be something um found these, these cooperatives to be a model that could work. Um, and that, you know, those only happened because people came together to form utilities in their own backyards, right. With public assistance, with support. Um, but, but there was, you know, real genuine involvement. If you look at the agricultural programs, the new deal, for instance, they encouraged, you know, a real build out of, of, um, democratic decision, decision-making around land planning, um, you know, held seminars for people to discuss not just, uh, not just, you know, soil conservation techniques, but um, the sort of ethics of democracy in, in you know, in American life. Uh, and so I think we, you know, see, uh, see the Green New Deal as, as, as really being a, a democratic project and also acknowledging that not every, um, Every decision we know is necessary um, to, uh, you know, get what we need to get done on climate is uh, is going to be made entirely at the local level, and that um, you know there there is a real role for federal decision making um, here. But but really to you know think about that question carefully, and and again uh, to go back to to 
things uh, we were talking about earlier in this in this interview. Um, you know, I think this is why this cannot be a program that's sort of just sent down from on high by a group of technocrats and in Washington, right? This is why it needs to be built by social movements, by, you know, the people who who have the most uh, most at stake um, in 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 the next, you know, what happens over the over the coming decades, um, who uh, you know, will be crucial to to not just um, building the political will we need to, to get the Green New Deal, but also to um, the design of the program itself and making sure that it really is a product, um, very much a product of, um, uh, of, of, of democratic decision making and not just, you know, the result of it. One of the big offers you make in this book is, quote, 10 million beautiful public, no carbon homes over the next 10 years in cities, suburbs, reservations, and towns in the most transit rich and walkable areas. So this is an enormous offer, but you argue that it isn't just a matter of giving out free stuff, as I'm sure many critics will argue, but this actually can work to correct a number of systemic injustices that have been running through our society for some time. So can you explain the issues this offer is meant to work as a corrective for? This is uh, one of my favorite topics, maybe my favorite topic, um, housing, climate change, and what we can do differently. Um, if we step back for a second, I think the core argument in our book is that the kind of climate change politics we're proposing is not about austerity and belt tightening. It's fundamentally about improving the living conditions of virtually everybody, everybody but the very rich. It's actually going to help them live better. Um, but to do that in a way that's ecologically sustainable, we have to reduce the amount of resources that are required to live well. Um, of course, eliminate carbon emissions, but also the amount of physical stuff that we need. So right now, the private sector builds uh, close to one and a half million units of housing a year. Um, this stuff doesn't really work. Right now, a third of Americans can't even afford their utility bills. In the part of the U.S. I live in, the Mid-Atlantic, half of Black families can't afford their utility bills. Uh, and like I was saying earlier, homes use about 40% of the electricity in the U.S., and they're responsible for about close to a sixth of U.S. carbon emissions. So we have to change the model. Um, the last thing I'll say, the, not, the sort of problems that we're trying to solve here, is that a lot of people hopefully will come to this country. But even if that weren't the case, a lot of Americans are going to have to move. Um, up to 45 million Americans will be living in land that's flooded annually by the end of the century. Uh, about four and a half million Americans right now, about half of which in California, live in zones of very intense risk from wildfires. So we're going to need to have some movement to safer places. And what we're saying is this, let's replace a lot of the shoddy private market construction with public construction of homes that don't emit any carbon emissions at all. And this will provide really great housing for people. It's not going to be free. Um, typically, residents of public housing pay a third of their income uh, in rent. Um, we propose that the housing is mixed income. We don't think it should be just for the very poor. So people in the middle class will have really good options to live, and they'll pay a third of their, their income, uh, or 30% is what they pay in New York. They'll pay, they'll pay rent. So it's not exactly free at all. Um, but the benefit of the public sector doing it is this. One, you can intentionally build these uh, housing units near public transit in walkable areas. You can actually build them really beautifully. We talk about the example of Vienna, uh, which in Europe, Vienna has right now one-third housing public, one-third cooperative, and just one-third private market, some of the best housing in the world. So you can build really good quality housing. And what we can do with that public procurement is we can really dynamize the green economy. Um, 
but we can not just build housing that doesn't emit carbon emissions because it's energy efficient, but we can also use the most advanced building materials. So we can talk about things like modular construction, um, sustainable wood products, uh, decarbonized cement, which is something the technology exists, but we need uh, large purchases to make that into like a market phenomenon. Um, so we can use public procurement to not just build these homes, but really advance the no carbon building sector overall. And the workers who are trained to build this no carbon public housing are then going to have really great careers doing all kinds of no carbon building work, whether it's retrofits or new construction. So we see this as kind of a microcosm in many ways of the broader picture, which is improving lives, reducing resource intensity, planning in a more rational way that helps to live, um, that helps people to live uh, better. So in this sense, we think of the new public housing we want to build as temples of public luxury um, that will be, you know, provide amenities to the whole community, be really helpful for the residents, provide new careers to people who are looking for a chance to do good work. I think it's really exciting. And I would note, that again, like we were talking about earlier, this is an issue where the Green New Deal piece of this is catching up to where the social movements already are. Um, there's a homes guarantee movement in the country uh, that's really picking up steam, has been pushing even more, 12 million units of social housing. Um, Ilhan Omar, representative from Minnesota, has already proposed a bill, a trillion dollars for 12 million units of social housing. That's actually quite a bit cheaper than Trump's tax cut for millionaires. And finally, when we think about what is it going to take to rebuild from the horrible recession that we're seeing with COVID, unemployment may be getting up to 30%, something like a public home building program is a really ideal way to put people to work doing exactly what the economy, what the environment, and what people need. One of the major transitions we'll need will be in transportation. Usually when people think of what the Green New Deal will offer here, they tend to imagine the government giving everyone a voucher for a brand new Tesla or some other uh, green eco-friendly car. You all have something a bit more thorough in mind. So can you explain what your plan is for how we're going to get around? Thanks. That's right. Um, you know, much as I want everybody to have a Tesla, I think we have to do a little bit better. Um, of course, the problem with having everybody having an electric car is it's massively ecologically ruinous to mine so much lithium so that we can all maintain this ridiculous um, way of getting around. The kind of neoliberal green movement has already shifted uh, and is talking about the idea of a transition from everybody owning cars to people having access to mobility services. The problem for us with that vision is it is fundamentally a vision of like autonomous driverless Teslas driving us around one or two at a time, like Uber pool or a Lyft line. Um, and that's really actually pretty inefficient ecologically and um, really is something that's going to benefit wealthy people far more than anybody else. So what we, what we say is let's start with just the most basic technology available to us. That's the bus. Buses are great. We now have electric buses. Most of them are in China, but they're cheaper over their entire lifetime. They're a much more efficient use of resources like lithium or anything else to move people around. They free up road space for people to walk and bike, unlike cars. So for us, on our vision, the electric bus is really the workhorse. But then we also talk about something which is spreading up all over the world, which are kind of public minivan ride shares. They'd also be electric. They'd be driven by union operators. But in suburbs, in rural places, in cities, let's say late at night, You'd have an option of, you know, much as you do with a Lyft or an Uber, but you would call up this like minivan run by the public transit agency. And that could take you on a more complex route. And maybe it would cost uh, a little bit more than the public transit. And we hope the full public transit would, would become free. Um, and so we could get into more details about all these different options. But fundamentally, I think what we're trying to say is 
not all about Teslas. It's not all about high-speed rail. That's important, but we've got to think about the commute. And our, our fundamental goal is saying this. We don't want belt tightening. We don't want you waiting in line for hours and hours and hours. We want to provide you with a density of uh, no-carbon freedoms. We want to take the most efficient and intelligent way of providing you many different options for getting around with as much public involvement as possible. And that will make you live a better life. It's fundamentally about you being able to walk out the door, not worrying about car insurance or anything like that, not worrying about your horrible car payments, auto payments that Americans aren't even making right now, and simply know that you can walk out of the house and at low cost or hopefully at no cost, you can hop on a vehicle and end up where you want to be uh, in a short period of time. And if you do it, I think in, in the way that we're talking about, yes, you will revitalize manufacturing. Yes, we will use resources much more wisely. Um, and finally, the experience of kind of street life um, in cities and in towns and elsewhere won't be this alienating, isolated, essentially congestion, but will simply be getting around and making space to walk and to bike and to breathe clean air the whole time. So I, I think it's kind of uh, a pretty exciting vision. Um, and again, you know, when we talk about the stimulus and, try, and the kind of stimulus we'll need to get away from COVID, really, really high quality public transit that leaps us forward into the, you know, pushes us forward into the 21st century green economy in a way that's democratic, that's about union jobs, that's about individual mobility. I think that's a vision that has, a, that we, we can really build a movement around and, and get something done. One of the forces we'll have to eventually confront is the sheer inertia of current global supply chains, which have helped build some communities up at the expense of others. One of the dangers you see is that an attempt to transition American society into an environmentally sustainable one will only reify and intensify current supply chains of exploitation, saving ourselves at the expense of others. This will be made worse by market competition, which will push attempts to control certain resources undemocratically, often in the name of national security and energy dominance. So can you explain the dynamics at work here and what we'll need to do so as not to simply repeat past injustices in an environmentally friendly form? Yeah, thanks um, for that question. I think probably now more than ever, it's so clear how vulnerable the supply chains are that produce our um, all the goods and services that we that we purchase and rely on. Um, we're seeing this vulnerability um, you know increasing every single day due to the massive disruptions of the COVID induced economic downturn. And before that, we had like many months or a year of these kind of escalating trade wars between the US and China and other kind of like bellicose um, economic interactions. So supply chains, global supply chains are, are really vulnerable. And at the same time, or part of the reason for their vulnerability is that they're, they're very complicated. They're spatially dispersed. So, you know, each component of a product is made in like different parts of the world and the raw materials are extracted in different parts of the world. Um, they're highly financialized. They're increasingly computerized. Um, and in addition to all of this, for several decades, states have totally advocated control uh, over the flow of goods and capital and finance um, and um, signed trade agreements that are called, quote unquote, free trade agreements, but are really about protecting investors from worker and community demands. Um, all of these um, 
phenomena have um, made these supply chains extremely unequal. And so as kind of posed in your question, we have this concentration of social and economic harm, primarily in the global south, but also in, in the peripheral kind of regions of the global north. Um, a lot of in this in this context of, of disruptions to supply chains um, and also some of the social and economic harm that they produce, there's a lot of calls for we need to kind of rethink supply chain governance and increase supply chain security. Um, I think that, you know, the four of us are are skeptical of some of the kind of, you know, energy dominance and security kind of in the kind of state and corporate register, um, you know, who, whose security or security for whom is like not often addressed explicitly. Um, but I think that we all agree that like we need a different way to govern supply chains, um, not so much in the interest of dominating them, which is a lot of the current frame that corporations and states are using, um, but more in the interest of ensuring that there's equitable global access to life and planet saving technologies. Um, and this is especially important now because we're kind of at this critical juncture that that Daniel spoke a bit about in terms of the types of um, the infrastructures and, and technologies and appliances and all the things that we need to produce in order to have a greener and lower carbon world. So we need a lot more wind turbines and solar panels and electric vehicles, hopefully buses more than cars. Um, and we want to you know, ideally produce those in ways that don't reproduce the global inequalities um, of the sort of fossil capital regime. Um, the, the other kind of piece here um, in terms of rethinking supply chains is that um, we argue in the book that these supply chains are actually a much, the supply chains that produce green technology specifically um, are much more concrete and kind of material um, uh, kind of set of sites and offer a bunch of sets of kind of policies and policy interventions compared to more conventional forms of kind of international or global climate politics. So usually when we think about the kind of international realm of, of climate politics, we think about the Paris Accords um, or prior agreements, um, which have been overall like pretty disappointing. Like it sucks that the U.S. left the Paris Accords, but honestly, the Paris Accords also kind of sucked and, you know, did not um, did not have any teeth. The targets were really unambitious um, and they were just highly shaped by the interests of the largest polluters, um, whether countries or, or firms. And so instead of this kind of international realm of, of climate politics, which are these kind of elite packs that don't do very much, um, we argue that these supply chains that produce green technology um, are super essential, first of all, because we need the green technologies to be produced, and none of them can currently be produced in one country alone. Um, but they're also kind of more concrete in terms of thinking about what are the kind of policy tools and forms of social mobilization that might be useful to reshaping how the global economy works. Um, so we argue for a couple of different approaches here. One is to think about how trade policy could be transformed in order to reshape those global supply chains. So as I was kind of mentioning earlier, the so-called free trade regime um, systematically favors capital mobility, investment, the movement of goods, and really restrictive intellectual property rights. Um, so kind of as a, in opposition to that, we advocate for trade policies that have the explicit goal of increasing access to green technology, um, reducing emissions, and also protecting the rights of workers and indigenous communities as a primary goal rather than something that's kind of tacked on without any enforcement mechanisms. Um, and actually, um, Daniel and I and a couple of other um, uh, researchers at Data for Progress pulled these um, these kind of points recently asked, you know, in, in a survey, would you be in favor 
of trade policies that do exactly what I just said, kind of increase equitable access to green tech and prioritize rights of workers and communities um, over just like the free flow of goods. And we actually, I was, I was honestly surprised and very pleasantly surprised to see that, that we, we got majority support um, on those surveys. So just a kind of point about that these are actually politically feasible. And, and in fact, we see that this, the so-called free trade regime is under attack um, from the right and from the left, and so it's not it's not clear that that's like a more popular approach to to, to how we govern trade. Um, and the last thing that I'll I'll say here is that um, you know kind of in line with with our overall theory of power and theory of change in the book, we know that well-intentioned policies don't just like drop out of the sky. It's not going to be like policymakers wake up and decide to restructure global supply chains in a more equitable way. Um, so we also kind of think through what what kind of transnational solidarity would look like, what types of movements that have alliances across borders, and maybe also connect kind of actors that we don't necessarily think of as usually being in alliance with one another. Like we were just talking about um, electric vehicles. So what would it look like if the workers that produce those electric vehicles were in solidarity with the indigenous communities um, in Chile, where the lithium to produce those batteries is extracted. Um, and just, you know, this sounds kind of um, uh, ambitious, but, you know, we we face a crisis and we need to kind of deal with it at the at the proper scope and I think kind of at the proper scale. And there are certainly um, really interesting past examples of really beautiful and inspiring transnational solidarity campaigns, such as, you know, the, the solidarity movement in the U.S. in terms of um, people being in, in solidarity with the victims of Reagan's dirty wars in Central America, right? Um, and so I think that there are certainly great examples of these types of movements in the past. And what we need to do is think about what transnational solidarity looks like that in ways that kind of connect the grassroots across the nodes of these different supply chains and put pressure on firms and states to change the way those those supply chains are governed and to change um, trade policy to that end. One question that I'm sure a number of listeners have is, how are we going to pay for this? So usually this question is asked in bad faith as a way of shutting conversations down, but it is still a reasonable concern that is worth having a conversation about. However, you write near the beginning of your book and make the case throughout that the question implicitly seems to assume a lot about the transition you're proposing, that it will be business as usual, but with $150 billion worth of solar panels slapped on top. So can you explain the problematic assumptions built into this question and why the Green New Deal is actually more affordable than people might often assume? Yeah, this is an important question, um, even though, as you say, it can be asked in bad faith as as a sort of way of just um, derailing the conversation. But I I do think that uh, people often... Uh, wonder when they hear, uh, you know, we're going to spend a lot of money on this, we're going to do, you know, projects that are huge public uh, investment. You know, Bernie's climate plan was a $16 trillion uh, climate plan, which is, uh, I think we were all very excited about because it's like on the scale of what we need to invest and build. Uh, But I think that that sounds like a lot of money to people and they worry, where is it going to come from? Um, And we are really um, used to a kind of austerity thinking in a way that makes it hard to imagine that kind of huge public investment. Um, So I guess I want to say, first of all, that we actually... um, 
we really do have uh, the capacity to spend that kind of money. Um, I think right now we're seeing that, uh, you know, in the stimulus that just passed last week, the COVID uh, response to the COVID uh, crisis, the stimulus was around $2 trillion. That was larger in monetary terms than, uh, you know, the Joe Biden's entire 10-year climate proposal. Um, so it turns out that actually the money is there. If we decide that it is a crisis moment, we need to do something. Um, you know, it's really easy for the U.S. government to borrow money right now. Uh, it's a good time to spend a lot of money. Uh, the dollar remains the global reserve currency. We can spend we can spend a lot more than uh, I think people realize we can. Um, there's a lot of taxable money, obviously. Uh, I think Daniel mentioned the Trump tax cuts, is tr- another $2 trillion in tax cuts on top of decades other, of other tax cuts for the rich. Um, there's obviously a ton of military spending that could be repurposed or diverted. So we spend nearly a trillion dollars annually on the military. So we know that there's um, money to spend on different things. And some of that is just a matter of shifting priorities. Um and I say all of that to say that, you know, that there's there's every reason to believe that we have, um, you know, the, the room to to move. We have the money to spend. But I also don't think that that's how we win the argument. I don't think that you win by focusing on how to pay for it uh, on technical grounds, because that just gets you into this. Uh, I think we get stuck in this kind of um, technical discussion of where the money comes from. Um, but I don't think that that is what convinces people. Um, you can have a fully costed proposal uh, and people, and you can, you know, this is sort of anecdotally, but talking to people about the Green New Deal, you can you can have a plan for how you pay for it. Uh, and I think because we've been in this kind of austerity mindset for so long, people will still not believe it's possible. Even if you've done all the math, you've done all the calculations, you know how you would sort of end up paying for it. Um, and so I think it's really important to shift the conversation uh, away from just sort of like getting into the details, uh, which again, you know, people uh, have rightly pointed out that question doesn't get asked when we talk about military spending, um, when we talk about tax cuts and so on. Um, and so we really need to to realize that this is, um, I think, something that we're going to be paying for one way or another. We're going to be paying for climate, climate change one way or another. Um, the economic impacts are just going to be enormous. Uh, there's going to be a huge amount of destruction that happens through climate disasters, uh, you know, hurricanes, fires, uh, fires like the, the fires that were um ravaging Australia just two months ago, although it feels a lot longer ago than that. Um, People will lose jobs, they'll lose homes, people will die. There's going to be um, enormous economic consequences. And so we can spend money, uh, we can spend money to try to mitigate um, the worst effects of climate change, to prepare ourselves for the effects that are coming, to reduce our carbon emissions so that those effects uh, are less severe, or we can spend money cleaning up after disaster after disaster, even as the earth keeps getting warmer, as things keep getting worse. Um, so there's no not paying for it. And I think we really just need to sort of reframe that debate uh, instead of getting stuck in the weeds. The money is there. We're seeing that now with the response to COVID. Um, and we need to sort of release that money to deal with the climate crisis that is here and that's coming at us. Yeah, so jumping off of that, and to go beyond the book a little bit, you all recently co-authored a short article for Jacobin where you looked at the recent COVID-19 pandemic, which you see as demonstrating the urgency and necessity of implementing the sorts of policies you advocate in the book. So how does the COVID-19 pandemic highlight and exacerbate certain social and political antagonisms 
that will be opened to an even greater extent by climate change? And how would the policies wrapped up in the Green New Deal help us better cope? Thank you. That, it, it's a great question and it's challenging, but I think important to think about the COVID-19 epidemic and climate change um, at the same time. Uh, as you pointed out, we recently did a piece, and actually this harkens back, way back to the beginning of this conversation, um, in this piece about you know thinking about the COVID epidemic and climate change together, we think, well, what happened the last time we had a major crash? Uh, that was the Wall Street crash in 2008 and the recovery, which was largely under Obama. And one of the points that we make in that piece is that Research shows the decisions taken early in the transition to the Obama administration had a huge impact on everything that happened afterward. So even before Obama took office on January 1st, 2009, his administration had already decided not to take aggressive measures to keep people in their homes. Um, The incoming head of of Fannie Mae, for instance, was proposing, actually, the government could just buy out all these failing mortgages and then rent the um, houses to their occupants so they would never actually be displaced, rented at extremely low rates initially. Um, by January 1st, 2009, the Obama administration had already decided not to have a really jobs-intense recovery with direct government hiring of affected people and had decided not to pursue aggressive green jobs measures. Um, So I think that tells us a couple of things about what we have to do now. One, of course, is we need a much bigger stimulus. It has to be very egalitarian. It has to feel visceral to the people who benefit from it. Um, So you don't we rarely encounter a working class person in the United States who will talk about 2009 as a year when the government really came through for them in a clear way. But we are talking about a big green stimulus. And a bunch of us, uh, a couple of us, and I have cooperated on a letter, a letter to the members of Congress calling for a big green stimulus, jobs forward, direct investments in communities where people would immediately benefit and say, wow, okay, there was a big crisis. Now I have a job. It's thanks to the green stimulus. Um, the green business that was employing me or some other business didn't fail uh, because of the screen stimulus. You know, I'm eating better food now uh, from my local region thanks to the screen stimulus and that's put money in my pocket and in the pockets of farmers and better food. Um, so we need a, a, a bigger, better stimulus. Um, the other thing is, yeah, inequalities, like you said. I mean, people like to say things like, oh, the virus doesn't discriminate. The virus isn't racist. Well, that's true, but the rest of society is. Um, so you've seen hugely disproportionate already deaths um, of Black Americans, you've seen uh, in the Navajo Nation now a large number of deaths and infections in communities that don't even have access to running water. And of course, in the book, we talk and and elsewhere, the need to invest in indigenous um, communities. So these crises are really supercharged by inequality. It's as true for the microbiology of a virus as it is for the kind of like macro planetary impacts of climate disasters. Um, The inequalities that we live with make the experience of these things so much worse. And that means that our response has to not just be microbiological in the case of a vaccine or kind of macro environmental in the case of solar panels and, and instead of fossil fuels, but we need a socially transformative response as well that lifts up communities, lifts up workers, provides more quality. And everybody, this is so important politically, everybody has to understand what's happening. People have to understand that a massive government stimulus it's not about bailing out corporations. It's about bailing out workers and communities and building now an economy that's truly sustainable and resilient to the shocks ahead. So, um, you know, I think hopefully Theo will say more uh, in just a second. It's, it's difficult to talk about climate change um, right now in the middle of COVID, but we're walking right into a wildfire season in California. 
um, will workers actually be able to do the controlled burns that keep the smoke out of lungs that are also endangered by COVID? Um, a third of the country is vulnerable this year, spring and summer, to flooding, kind of flooding we saw in the Midwest last year. And meteorologists are telling us this will be one of the worst hurricane seasons we've seen recently, very high likelihood of major hurricanes on the Atlantic seaboard. So climate change and COVID are converging. That's not something we can stop. What we can do is a response that tackles the root causes of our vulnerability and the root cause of the climate emergency. Um, yeah, so that that covered a lot of ground. I'll just kind of emphasize a couple of um, of additional points, um, which is to say that you know this economic, the economic um, stimulus packages. Um, we don't know how many there will there will be. We're currently debating round four, um, but there'll be there'll be economic recovery packages, you know, for the foreseeable future. And you know, the question is like, what um, what type of economy will we will we build um, as the pandemic recedes? Um, economic recoveries are moments to, you know, either reinforce or even exacerbate existing inequalities and vulnerabilities in the economy. And we saw that that happened very clearly, um, as Daniel already explained in the sort of post-2008 um, moment. Um, so right now we have another critical juncture. Are we going to reinforce a highly unequal, financialized, um, carbon-intensive economy that leaves people vulnerable to economic insecurity and also to the ravages of climate crisis? Or are we going to build a more just, greener economy for that provides for economic security for all? Um, and so, you know, the, the kind of both centrist and, and especially right wing uh, ideas that you know climate is is irrelevant to this is is total BS. As we've explained earlier, of course, carbon is and climate are, are relevant to everything. But in addition, like the way that that the right um, will want to rebuild the economy does have climate implications, whether or not they frame them that way. So. Um, you know, just take infrastructure, for example, um, which will be one of the kind of hotly debated things in the, in the next round of stimulus. Um, every, every piece of infrastructure that we build is either good or bad for the climate, right? And so we'll, what we'll see, um, unless we kind of make some clear alternative demands, is infrastructure that emphasizes pipelines and highways and our sort of, you know, individualized automobility um, and um, really doesn't lay the groundwork for an energy transition. Or we could have energy or we could have a set of infrastructural investments that do kind of lay the groundwork for an energy transition um, and, and are kind of equitable in terms of where those investments are placed and which communities are prioritized and create lots of jobs, right? So, the recovery is, is just a juncture and it's a set of political choices that need to be made. And the choices um, that say that they're not, they don't, you know, that climate is irrelevant are, are not irrelevant to climate. They're just terrible for the climate. And the choices that we should be making are to kind of rebuild our economy and reboot our economy in a way that, you know, provides um, dignified jobs and also lays the kind of physical groundwork for the transition that we know we need to avoid, you know, an even worse kind of climate climate catastrophe than the one that's already unfolding. So to wrap this up a bit, I want to leave listeners with a sense of what they can do to help. If this were kind of a standard, more liberal talk about environmentalism, you would likely end this pitch for maybe a particular product like a new eco-friendly iPad. But given everything that we've been talking about, I imagine you have some different suggestions in mind. So what are some good starting points for how people listening to this can start to get involved? Uh, thanks for this question. You know, actually, 
I guess I am a liberal. I was going to propose a new green iPad um, with an amazing set of features. Um, just kidding. Okay. Really great joke there, Daniel. Good job. Um, look, I think the fundamental thing that any individual can do to make big change is to join up with other individuals. That's really the only way. Um, right after this kind of COVID epidemic really blew up, uh, I guess about something like 10 days ago, uh, middle of March, we saw a bunch of groups that are doing social justice work release a set of principles, five principles for just uh, relief to COVID-19. And that morphed into something called hashtag people's bailout. But those five principles have been now endorsed by over 800 different groups. Um, he and I talked a little bit about a letter a bunch of us wrote uh, advocating for a, a green stimulus that's been signed by over uh, about 2,000 people now, uh, including the former head of the EPA, Gina McCarthy. Um, and so I think what you're starting to see is even compared to just a few months ago, A, Republicans talking about trillions and trillions of dollars of public spending to shore up the economy. We've not ever seen that before. And then B, um, among progressives, a really large number of groups and people coming together, um, no longer the kind of divisions uh, that we've seen in recent months, but a kind of really broad coalition forming and saying we have to bounce, not bounce back to how it was a few months ago, you know, people living paycheck to paycheck, extremely vulnerable to climate change and to disease, but bounce forward to a much better economy and that also tackles the climate emergency. And so I guess what I would say to any individual, if you're feeling alone right now, and the odds are you are, because we're all in self-isolation, if you're feeling alone right now and you're not already plugged into one of these groups or one of these movements, you know, look around on social media, look around in terms of what's happening in your city, you will find groups that are trying to come together around immediate relief from this disaster. And you'll find among those a large number of groups that are also looking ahead a few months, even a year, and saying, what kind of economic recovery are we going to need? And just reach out. And I think, honestly, I can't imagine any sort of better, I can't imagine any better remedy for the kind of solitude that we're facing right now than to reach out, even if it's on Zoom or on Twitter DMs or you name it, or Instagram DMs. Reach out, find other people who are feeling that anxiety that you are, and join the projects that are already ongoing to try to tackle these crises. Um, again, there's never been so much money on the table. There's never been so many groups agreeing on the broad contours of a just uh, pathway forward. And if you're not partaking in that already, you can be. It will take a day or two, and you'll be in this movement. And I promise it'll feel a little bit better. Um, at least that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, uh, which isn't always easy. But that's what, that's what works for me. Um, Kate, do you want to jump in? Well, I'll jump in, uh, Absinthea. Um, so <laughs> I'll, um, I, I mean, I co-sign everything Daniel just said. I think that's all really important. But I want to emphasize especially the sort of last um, uh, note he was ending on around um, feeling about getting out of bed in the morning, because I think that's probably something that we all can struggle with, the feeling of, I think, despair and hopelessness that characterizes a lot of the climate conversation. Um, uh, and especially, I think, that is probably intensified now by, um, you know, the fact that we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Uh, daily life is totally disrupted. It feels really hard to figure out how to um, just kind of go through day-to-day uh, -day life, let alone get involved in a, um, you know, uh, a movement to to combat climate change. Um, but I really, I really do want to just emphasize what Daniel said about um, uh, the way that I think uh, how important I think being involved in 
um, political action is for combating that sense of despair and hopelessness. Um, one of the things we really wanted to do in this book was to present um, a vision of a climate changed future that's not Pollyanna-ish, that's not saying, oh, everything will be just fine, uh, that recognizes that we're going to see, you know, more storms, more warming, um, a lot of things that are going to be, uh, that are going to be bad. Uh, but that does, that means, that doesn't mean that there's not something we can do uh, about it, that there's always, um, there's always something we could do to, to make things less bad. <laughs> um, you know, we, we sort of joke sometimes that it can always get worse, uh, which is, may not sound very inspiring, but I actually find that to be a pretty motivating slogan because it reminds you, you can never sort of just give up and say, well, everything really sucks. Um, I'm depressed. I'm not going to try. Um, cause it really is incumbent on us to keep fighting, uh, you know, for, to make things better every step of the way. And we are in a moment of huge opportunity right now. Um, even if the challenges are really immense. So, um, you know, as Daniel said, I think connect to the climate movement where you are, whether it's locally, if you're in, you know, uh, in your through the union in your workplace, um, through uh, local community groups, uh, through your local DSA chapter, through whatever uh, you know kind of uh, organization that makes it possible for, for you to plug in. Like we really do think that climate change touches everything, and so it's not that you drop everything and become um, a climate activist uh, apart from the rest of your life. It's figuring out ways to build um, work around climate into the day to day. Yeah, I would agree with everything uh, Daniel and Alyssa have just said. I'll add um, something that uh, my housemates have been doing just personally, which has been happening in a sort of exciting way in cities around the country, um, is kind of checking in with neighbors and, and, and looking into the possibility of, of what it might look like um, to go on run strike, um, to, you know, say that people, you know, are having a lot of trouble paying, um, paying their, uh, paying their bills and, and paying rent. And this is, you know, being organized by um, some of the groups Daniel mentioned earlier and Alyssa mentioned just now, um, the DSA, the Crown Heights Tenant Union, um, who, you know, are not what we would traditionally think of as being uh, necessarily climate climate groups, um, but, you know, all, all, all uh, organizing is climate organizing in, in, in some sense, um, especially, especially now. And so, um, you know, I think there are certainly real material concerns people can uh, be meeting and, and, you know, just checking in with checking in with neighbors, you know, getting linked up with the mutual aid network, which um, groups and uh, groups I just mentioned and many, many others across the country are organizing now. Um, you know, I, I, I can, I, I think it's easy to, to be a little overly romantic about the uh, extent of uh, mutual aid and sort of individual initiative um, that uh, that comes out in in moments like this, especially you know when we know that there is such a dire need for the state to provide services that they just aren't. Uh, certainly, New York um, leaves a lot to be desired, um, but I think it's also really just incredible to see the social solidarity that's, that's emerging um, in this crisis. And I think, you know, people have been writing about this recently, but I think there's there's been a sort of frustrating line um, that we've heard from kind of liberals and, you know, people on the right about uh, climate climate action as a, as a collective action problem and that, you know, not enough people are just going to be convinced that this is, this is a crisis. And I think it's, you know, there's certainly a danger to over over-interpreting what we're seeing now 
into into climate, but um, really just you know such an incredible show of of, of solidarity from people, um, you know, looking looking out for their neighbors, looking out for people they don't know, um, and really, you know, I think that has been uh, inspiring for me to see over, you know, albeit over the internet mostly, um, but like everyone. Uh, but I think, you know, we're, we're seeing something which I think could bear um, real fruit for, for climate and, you know, I think will help, um, as we've been talking about in, in the last hour or so, um, to build the kind of political support that we'll need uh, to, to, you know, get the, the sort of stimulus we need and, and to build the kind of low carbon world, no carbon world we need. Yeah, do you have anything to close this off with? Um, oh, no, because yes. I, I I wrote this at the bottom, but I I feel like my my the points that I thought of were covered very well. So I'm gonna not add anything <laughs> here. We can end with whatever Kate said, which I didn't hear, but I assume was brilliant. Oh. <laughs> okay, well, this has been an hour and forty minutes, very well spent. So Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, Daniel Eldana Cohen, and Theo Rio Francos, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having uh, us on. You. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you.